Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. It's a June day at our home near Cottonwood High School in Salt Lake City, and my guest is Nelson Lee. By way of introduction, um, Nelson is going to talk about his journey with OCD, anxiety, and depression that really came when he started his mission in the Philippines. He served about a month and then had to come home and really hit this head on. So Nelson's bravely talking about this. Nelson is not LGBTQ. I don't usually say that about people, Nelson, but I do so many LGBTQ podcasts. They may assume that's part of your journey, but it's not. Um, Nelson grew up in Salt Lake City, went to Alta High School, um, lacrosse, um, good academic, loves to ski. And we'll just talk about his journey then going to BYU and starting his mission. Nelson's an active member of the church, um, is 29 right now has a good job, has a couple degrees, and we'll talk about that. Nelson offered a really good prayer, and we just pray the Spirit is here as Nelson's brave enough to talk about OCD, anxiety, and depression, and his journey in this space and what he's learned. And I think our hope is that if you're in that space, Nelson um, can give you hope because of what he's done and what he's learned and having to go really deep to figure this out. If you're a parent or a friend or a priesthood leader and you have someone, you have stewardship responsibility over that has OCD, anxiety, or depression, I think Nelson will have insights that will help you to help them. So with that, Nelson, is that a fair introduction? Absolutely. Thanks for that. Solid. So we're glad. Tell us about Alta High. Just what were you into at Alta High as a way to get started? So at Alta, I was pretty into school. And academics in general, I always got good grades, but I was also into lacrosse and other outdoor sports. I, I grew up loving to mountain bike and, and get outside and, and go skiing, those types of things. And that's really what I filled my time with when I was outside of school. Tell us about lacrosse. I don't know much about that sport. So lacrosse, I mean, it's essentially like soccer, I would say. That's one of the closest sports to it. But you're all padded up, and the the ball is small. It's about the size of a baseball, and you use a, a stick to launch it into a goal. Awesome. How did I, was that a club team or was that a school team? Yeah, back then it was still club sport. So that was something that I got into with just a few buddies. And back then we didn't even play on the high school fields. We were always booted over to the middle school, and so we played over there. But Yikes! A lot of fun though. That's, That's great. And um, pretty we traditionally believing member of the church growing up at Alta High and always planned to serve a mission or did this come later for you? Yeah, I, I grew up in a pretty traditional family and I was always taught the values of the gospel and I think I, I always really just believed it in general. I don't think I ever really had something test my testimony until my mission experience though. So I think it was just a general belief and I just felt like it was the right thing to do. So that was the path that I took. Did you go to school for a year um, after graduating from high school or did you go right out on your mission? Or is this pre when you, maybe this is pre, you didn't have a choice. You had to go to school for a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So due to my age at that time, um, it was before the age change. So I did have to go to a year of school or I should say I decided to. So I went down to BYU, lived down there for a year and, and completed a couple of semesters before heading out. And then tell us about opening your call. Tell our listeners where you were assigned and just that experience of opening your call. 
So the call, that was a really exciting time. I got called to the Baguio Philippines mission. And I remember opening that and just thinking to myself, where is that? I know the Philippines is out there in the ocean somewhere, but I had no idea where. I remember reading the language, Tagalog, and just having no clue what that was all about. And so it was a shock, but I was excited at the same time. And how long did you have to wait before you went on your mission? I had to wait, I think, five months-ish. So I think long? I got my call, yeah, in about February or March, and I left in July. Yeah, so plenty of time. Mm -hmm. What Absolutely. temple did you go through to receive your endowment? I went through Draper. Draper. That's where I grew up in kind of home base. And just on a personal note, today we had um, our youngest son, Ben, received his endowment. We have six kids, and he's the sixth kid to receive his endowment. He's a recent high school grad and is going on a mission. So it's an honor as a dad to be an escort for a son receiving his endowment. That was a wonderful experience at the Jordan River Temple. That's become his favorite temple. There we go. As he's done baptisms. Talk about um, if I met you at Alta High School um, and you were really honest with me as a senior, would you have recognized any sort of OCD, anxiety, or depression? Were there I, anything going in your life that made you think I'm got some, you know, I've got something I've got to deal with? I definitely wouldn't have recognized it. I felt like I lived a really normal childhood as well as uh, into my youth. And I definitely didn't recognize any issues as far as that went. Looking back now, I can see those signs. But back then, yeah, I, I would have told you I was good to go. And I would assume I would have looked at you if I were your priestly, your family member and said, yeah, you're good to go. Is, is that true? Or did you have people in your family sensing some things that you weren't quite aware of or dealing with? Or was did anybody pick up on this? It really blindsided almost everybody. I remember, especially uh, my stake president, he was he was super hyped for me to go out. He he told me regularly, you know, I'm one of the, the most prepared missionaries he's met. He's super excited for me to get my call to go out. Meetings with him went really well, and he was one of the most floored when I came back. So, That's good. I think it's yeah. good to kind of talk about how some of this stuff in our lives is not particularly known to us or to others. And it's not means we're in denial. We just haven't been stretched, perhaps, or put in a situation we fully understand. Talk about the MTC. Um, I think you're there for how many weeks, Nelson? So I was there for nine weeks. And for the most part, my MTC experience was pretty standard. I remember getting in there and the first week being a little bit of a shock and just waking up to those brick walls in the middle of the night going, man, I'm really doing this. But overall, I, I dug my heels in and, and started going. And it really became a place that I enjoyed being in. I, I started learning more. I really bonded with the people in my district. And overall, my MTC experience was pretty average, really normal. And I was enjoying myself, at least up until the last week I was there. Tell our listeners what happened the last week. So the last week I was there, I... Uh, had a, a strange experience, something that I'd, I'd never had before. I We went to our, our normal uh, temple visit, and I remember while I was in there, out of nowhere, basically, I, I had a panic attack. I, I couldn't really understand it at the time or what had provoked it, what had led up to it, but I just knew that it happened, and, and after it happened, I had a, a really heightened sense of anxiety. I felt like my mind was racing. And for that last week, I just remember being in this constant state of panic. I, 
I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I just assumed I was nervous and that if I just kept pressing forward, I'd, I'd make it out there and things would be all right. Describe a panic attack, even though at the time you didn't have vocabulary to describe it. If if I were walking back w- with you and your fellow missionary from the Provo Temple back to the MTC, that grassy area, and I would say, Elder Lee, you know, tell me, and you opened up to me, how would you describe it to me? My first instinct was to think it was a heart attack, actually. I remember one of the first things that I noticed was my heart just started pounding, and I, I started to get really short of breath, and I kind of buckled over. I didn't really want anyone else to notice that I was going through something weird, and I just felt an overall rush of nervous energy going through me. And it's hard to say how long it lasted. I was kind of just caught up in this moment wondering what was going on and whether or not my heart was going to stop or something. And after a little bit, it, it just slowly started to go away. But there was still that residual anxiety that was left over that I, I couldn't really make sense of and I really got hung up on. And this happened in the temple. It did. What triggered it? Do you have any feeling what triggered your first panic attack? So looking back, I, it's easy to kind of put um, emphasis on the temple and, and where I was at and maybe some of the stresses that, that go on in there. It's it's really a place where, where it's easy to feel like, you know, maybe we're not perfect enough. But uh, looking back now, I can see that there are patterns that actually led up to it that are completely unrelated to the temple. They're... They're patterns that I was essentially engaging in, or you could even call them unhealthy mental behaviors that really led up to that moment. And so I think the when and the where isn't necessarily as important as the behaviors that led up to it. And at the time, I really did get caught up thinking, man, maybe the temple had something to do with it. And I think that's something that really got my mind churning and ruminating was trying to figure out why this was happening. Was I unworthy of this? was this something that I deserved? And, and it was easy to get caught up into that type of thinking. And that was really unhealthy for me to engage in. But at the time, I didn't know any better. And so I kept feeding that. And, and that's what slowly started to grow before I left out for the Philippines. Talk about going to the Philippines. Were you anxious on the plane ride, aware of this last week of new sort of things that were coming in your life with this panic attack? or And did just t- what was that plane ride like? Were you worried about the past week? Were you mostly just thinking about the future? For me, when I left to go out to the Philippines, my thoughts were really still back on that initial moment and trying to figure out what went wrong because I was still feeling those feelings of anxiety. I was still feeling really nervous about things. My thoughts were still racing. I felt a lot of tension in my body. And it, it was something that just didn't go away. It was relentless. And I, I didn't know where it had come from, where it was it was taking me. If it was getting worse, I just felt constantly hyped up. And so on the plane ride out there, I just kind of tried to, to buckle down, focus on just getting there, taking things one step at a time. And I just figured, you know, if I can get out there, I can get to the mission home, I can get through this. And I, I just started kind of setting little milestones for myself and, and just taking those small steps to keep going. I like. I want to come back to uh, more of the story once you come home from your mission, but there's a lot going on here that you're able to f- understand at a later date. Um, so talk about, I love where you did, I, I really admire you 
sort of compartmentalizing this and saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get through the mission home and I'll get to my first area and just kind of have faith that this, whatever's going on will pass. So, you know, how was the mission home experience and how was getting in your first area? Did it, the word relentless, did that le- did that lift at all in the mission home experience or as you got in your first area? So in the mission home, I remember just feeling relieved that I'd made it. And I think that was a, a sense of relief in itself. I was there and I, I had a chance to meet my mission president, who was an awesome man. And I remember still questioning why I was feeling this way. I remember questioning my worthiness. And I remember one of the things that I did while I was in the mission home is I, I sat the, the mission president down and said, look, I, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. Um, the only thing I can think of is worthiness issues. And I remember just cleaning the slate. I'd already cleaned the slate with the stake president, but I just decided to do it again, see if that helped things out. And he looked me straight in the eyes and said, you know, you're good to go, you're fine. And he just said, put it behind you, let's go to work. And so I, I got a little sense of relief there. It was like a little bit of reassurance, which that's actually something um, with OCD that can actually get the best of you. You can find yourself consistently seeking reassurance and looking for the relief that it brings. But I found that that reassurance oftentimes is really short-lived and continuing to seek it can really lead to more long-term discomfort. That's pretty insightful. Constantly seeking reassurance can actually be part of the whirlpool and part of the challenge in itself. I admire you coming clean with your mission president. Um, I think that it would be logical for a missionary feeling some discomfort to link that with any sort of past sins. And every missionary that goes on a mission has never been perfect. No one's perfect. So I think it's logical to sort of rethink of everything that we've done. I call that sometimes hyper-religiosity is where we we see some, feel something going in our life and we think it's personal worthiness related. And then we think of everything we've ever done because this must be how it feels to not be worthy mm-hmm. and be a missionary. Absolutely. So talk about your first area. Take us, t- tell us the name of the first area. So I was out uh, in an area called Lingayan. And it was a ways away from the mission home. The mission home is up in the mountains in Baguio. And I was in the outskirts, uh, much lower. It was at a, a really low elevation down by the beach and a really poor area. And, and that really opened my eyes to, to the world. I, I got a taste of reality there that I definitely wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. And so it, it was really interesting because there was a part of me that really loved it so much. I was able to connect with these people, even though I was barely speaking the language. Um, but I was also just still being hampered by by these feelings. I remember my sleep was struggling a little bit. I I still was having a really hard time focusing in lessons just because my, my brain wanted to ruminate. My brain wanted to figure out why I was feeling the way I was. And it was almost as if the want to figure out why I was feeling the way I was, was what was the driving force behind making it worse. It was that urge to figure it out. And so that is, is really what, what drove me down the hole. And I would say that coupled with really wanting to make sure that I was being almost a perfect missionary. I really wanted to double down on obedience and make sure that I was doing everything right so that I, I would have as much of the Lord's hand as possible. And 
And that was, that was really tough. I, I think that that really drove me down further and it was really easy to get caught up in that. Why did that drive you down further wanting to be perfect? So in my experience, when we get so focused on perfectionism, I feel like our focus isn't actually on the values of the gospel or on the things that we really want to pursue. And instead it's really on our faults. My focus was always on what am I doing wrong? Where am I, am I slipping up? And I was just overanalyzing those little areas and, and they were minuscule. I, in the grand scheme of things, I, I was an awesome missionary. I remember having my district leader out in the Philippines. He was like, man, you work so hard. What's going on? And it, it was almost something where he could see something was off because I was working so hard. And so I think getting caught up in, in trying to make up for those inadequacies and those, those feelings of maybe I'm not worthy, maybe I, I, I'm not perfect enough, I'm, I'm not good enough to be out here, Really making up for those is is something that became an unhealthy mental behavior for me. And it was really easy to get caught up in engaging in that type of thought process. Yeah, I've wondered about um, exact obedience and perfect obedience. And I've wondered if that is a helpful culture to create in a mission. I'm all for obedience, just like you are. We know that um, great blessings come through obedient missionaries, but... I've worried that we've created an expectation that's unma- that's unmatchable or unreachable, and then we overanalyze ourselves because we haven't measured up or don't think we're worthy of God's blessings or His approval, or we won't be an effective missionary unless we're perfectly obedient. And the older I've gotten, I've realized that God works through imperfect people. I've I'm not perfect. I wasn't a perfect priesthood leader at times, but I've certainly felt God working through me as I tried to do my best and sort of make steady progress. So I've wrestled with that a little bit, Nelson, just in my own journey and my own ministry of counseling people is is how much to ask them to be perfectly obedient or exact obedient and how much that could potentially be destructive to them. Any more thoughts on that? It's a challenge. And and like you just mentioned there, I think it it can be destructive, but it also has its place. And I think a lot of it is really finding balance in in who we are and, and really where our focus is going. I think, like I mentioned before, so much of my focus was on the faults. And I think it's okay to recognize what you, you've maybe done wrong in the past and um, and try to correct yourself, make some course corrections there. But if that's where our focus is always, I don't feel like we're making progress. And for me, what was a real shift after I'd come home was recognizing that dwelling on my fears, dwelling on my imperfections, that wasn't helpful. What was helpful was, yeah, recognizing them, accepting the baggage and whatever comes along with those, and then moving forward towards what I actually care about and what I want to pursue in life. And that's where the real relief came was in pursuing those values and, and those things that I really wanted to, to go after in life. And it was moving that focus. If How long were you in this first area before you came home? So I was only out in the Philippines for about a month, and I was in that area the whole time. And did this happen really quick? In other words, if I had met you three weeks in the area, would you have said, you know, I think I'm going to go home in another week? Or was this just like way... You just felt like I'll get through this. So did it did the did it happen really quickly or was it real gradual? Were you talking to your mission president every week or did it suddenly just all come to a head at week four 
and a decision to come home? So I would say it was a gradual process that did happen almost exponentially. So it was over that, that span of about four weeks, I was just continually going deeper and deeper and deeper into this. And I, I didn't have any contact with my mission president. I actually didn't tell anyone about it until about week three or three and a half when my mission president just happened to be in our area and I pulled him aside. So it was something that I was largely keeping to myself and, and I slowly just watched my mental condition get out of hand. What did you say to him? Did you have, uh, what did you say? I, I remember we had a, I think it was a district meeting that he was present for and I just pulled him aside after and I said, I don't know what's going on with me. I, I mentioned our, our talk before and, and how I'd felt that level of discomfort when I first got to the mission home, but I just reiterated that I was not feeling normal and I was not feeling like I could continue functioning. And he, he basically was, was very compassionate with me. He said, you know what, let's, let's have you come to the mission home and get you on the phone with our mission counselor and hopefully we can get some clarity through that. So he was very open about it. He didn't make any quick decisions and I could just tell he, he was there to help me through whatever it was. Did, he, did you feel shame talking to him? Did you feel weakness or did you, did, or, and did he, that's one question. Another question, did he sense this was different than just a typical out in the field for three weeks, homesick, minor anxiety, something happened. He seems to have picked up that this was not typical. I think he definitely sensed it. And I think he could just see it in me. I think he could see how drained I was. And at that point, it's hard to say if I really felt shame because I wasn't feeling much of anything at that point. I, I had gone so deep that I, I just felt numb to everything. And that was that was one of the things that led me to believe that, okay, something, I guess, not normal to my, my regular being is happening. Something out of the norm is going on here, and this is probably something that I need to work on and get some help with. It, it obviously wasn't something that I could continue to handle on my own. And that was that was definitely challenging, but yeah, it was it was an overall feeling of numbness when I brought that up. Did you have feelings of suicide during these this time? During that time, I, that was another thing that really led me to believe that I was in a serious state um, or a seriously um, negative state was recognizing that I just didn't care, and I I don't think I I actively sought suicide, but I remember having images of, of accidentally walking out in front of a bus uh, and just thinking, you know, that might actually be a relief. And I remember the, the second I started to have thoughts like that, that's when I, I also just started to believe, okay, this, this is something more serious. This isn't me. Um, this isn't me in my normal state. This is something else that I'm dealing with. And, and it was really challenging to, to grapple with the, those feelings and and just try to get understanding around it. Thanks for being so honest. Yeah. Um, it's a real sign of courage. I, you know, I just, there's missionaries out there that are feeling the same things you're feeling right now and don't have the vocabulary or um, sort of the perspective to understand what's happening. And you're in a new environment anyway. And so there's so much new to separate the newness of the environment with something that's obviously not right takes, I think, a lot of maturity on your part and a lot of courage on your part to talk to your mission president. Thanks. We don't talk 
you know, very much, you don't want to go home. You know, this conversation with you're having with your mission president, I don't know if you realize at the time, could be the beginning of you coming home, which is obviously something you didn't want to do. Um, so I just, I'm really glad you talked to him. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad he too. responded. Yeah. So you go to the mission home, you talk to a counselor over the phone that's not local, that's clinically trained. That I don't know if the Skype call mm, or yeah, just an over the phone. It was just over the phone. We had a quick conversation about it. He asked me a few questions, um, much like the conversation that we just had. He asked me, you know, what are you feeling? How, um, how do you perceive kind of the patterns that are going on? Do you, do you notice anything about it? Do you feel, he actually, I think he asked me if I felt numb to, to feelings and um, whether or not I, I was suicidal. And I, I told him the same things. I just felt like I didn't care about much of anything. And I, I felt a complete lack of feeling other than a very constant feeling of anxiety. And so at that point, he, he confirmed to me that, you know, this is something you should probably get help with. And going home is probably going to be the best environment for you to do that. Talk about how you felt hearing that. Initially, it was it was a shock. It, it was something that I, I felt really blindsided by, but at the same time, I knew it was the right choice. So it was a really complex emotion that I felt um, amidst my mental condition anyway. And I just felt like all of the, the hopes and dreams of, of fulfilling that missionary calling uh, through all the years, they were just suddenly flying out of my hands so quickly. And, and I just remember thinking, gosh, I'm going to have to get on the phone with my parents here. They're, they're going to know in a matter of minutes. And, and so that's actually what happened next is we, we basically hung up the phone. I talked to the mission president for a little bit, and he said, okay, let's call your parents. And so I had to tell them, and, and they were just as shocked as I was. Couldn't believe it. What did they say then or when you got home that was helpful? So... It, over the phone, they, they initially just they couldn't grasp the, the gravity of the situation um, right off the bat, but it was really interesting how compassionate they were. Over the course of a few minutes of talking to me and the mission president, they started to understand and to see that, you know, this is, this is something that he's spoken to his president about. They've come to an agreement that this is going to be the best thing for him, and I, I know they were sad. They, they definitely felt a lot of empathy towards me and, and just that situation. And, and it, it was a tough phone call initially, but at the same time, uh, I've always had a, a good relationship with my parents, and I knew that they were people that, that would be understanding uh, of my situation regardless. And I felt like it was the same thing when I came home. They were glad to see me. They, they wanted to do whatever they could to help me get back on my feet. Talk about the first couple weeks home. Were you in a worse spot now, even coming home, or did were we in a better spot, even though you had a lot of work to do? So it was tricky. It was still a really confusing spot to be in, and and part of me so badly wanted to get home and things to just magically manifest back to normal life, but that isn't always the way it goes. And so I remember feeling really just distraught, and and I just felt out of place. I felt like I shouldn't be there, but I also knew I couldn't be out in the mission field. And I was really just in a, a state of unknown territory. I didn't know what was right for me at the time, but I knew that I, I wanted to start working towards getting my life back. I knew that the state that I was in wasn't healthy. And I, 
I just had hope that there was an answer out there for me, and, and it was a real challenge. Did you, if, what were things that were helpful people said to you when you came back to your ward, and what were things that were difficult? So I was lucky to have a really awesome home ward, and there were a lot of things that were said that were really beneficial, and a lot of them came down to people just saying, you know, I don't know what, what happened out there, but we're rooting for you, and you know, we're here if you need anything. And it, it was stuff like that. They didn't need an explanation. They, they didn't ask questions. They, they simply let me know that they were there for me and my family. And that was really beneficial. And overall, I, I didn't really have any negative experiences uh, with others. And, and maybe that's just because part of me didn't really care that much. To, I, I felt like I was really good at separating my value from the things that other people said, because people ask questions. They ask, what happened out there? What, what led you to be home? And, and there were a lot of people who just didn't understand. It was the same uh, mindset that I'd been in before this happened. And even in the moment, I didn't even know what happened. And so in a way, I kind of understood them not being able to get where I was coming from. And I feel like I was able to kind of separate myself from any feelings of discomfort they may have felt around that. I like that. I think there's a natural desire to understand why you're home, and we'd go through the possible categories. And I had an earlier guest. He wasn't like you, home because of a belated confession, I think is the term we use. And but he was so kind. He says, you know, even if I were home for a belated confession, I hope everybody would just love me anyway, that we wouldn't rank reasons someone's coming home as more okay and others less okay like I don't know what the best reason for coming home, really finding some medical reason like, you know, you broke your leg or you have pancreatic cancer. And so everybody goes, well, obviously he came home, duh. <laughs> you know, he's got to see doctors and yours is just as duh. I mean, you know, you've got to deal with things that are outside of your control that are part of your mental health mm -hmm. that you didn't cause and need to be dealt with. And so to me, that's sort of the same category. But I think we should not sort of rank these categories for coming home. And we should just do what your ward did is just love you. Absolutely. It was so beneficial just having that welcoming feeling of love. And I was really grateful for that at the time. So what year did you come home? Is this t nine years ago, 10 years ago? So this is almost 10 years ago now. I, it was still 2009. It was about October. So this is, you're coming up on your 10th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So... We could, I feel like I'd like to just now have you, you didn't come home as we talked before, um, Nelson, it isn't like you came home in one year, two years, you understood everything that was going on. It took you quite a while. And it's been even recently, you've been able to connect all the dots and fully understand through a new therapist. So just tell us, tell us where you, tell us kind of what you learned and where you are and what was helpful for you. Yeah, so it was a real challenge. And I remember going to therapists when I first got home and a lot, a lot of the time uh, they were helpful, they were compassionate and they wanted to help me, but I didn't feel like I was getting a lot of skills or tactics that I could implement in my, my daily life. I got a lot of sympathy and I got a few skills here and there that slowly started to build up over time as I saw different people. But I still noticed, even after I kind of came out of everything, I would still go through these big dips every, every year or two. And I, I could not figure out what was causing them. 
And it wasn't until I, I really did some digging through my own research, as well as uh, some of the diagnoses that I had been given by therapists, I just started doing a lot of research and, and I started to really double down on figuring out what OCD was all about. And I was able to connect with a professional uh, up in Centerville, Utah. And she was able to really dive into what was going on and, and help me understand some of the principles. And that's where I first felt like I was getting a handle on things is when uh, I first met with her up there. And she was one of the first therapists that I felt like really got my situation. And it, it's likely because she specialized in it. It was what she studied in school. And it was something that she was really passionate about. So getting that connection was extremely beneficial uh, just because she had worked with it every day. And she had insight it on it. Being OCD, exactly. Or it being some- yeah, being OCD. I feel like OCD was the real driver behind my anxiety and, and depression. They all just work together, though. They're they're definitely on the same team. Tell us about her and what she taught you, and that if and so that you can teach listeners some of the things you've learned through her so, and your own journey. I like that you kind of took control of this. And yeah, you need medic, you need professionals in your life, but it seems like you said, I've got to, I've got to take control of this to some extent. Mm-hmm. And she really helped me with the issues that were really bothering me. And, and this is something that I've found really common in, in therapy is, is we feel like we have a problem. We have something that's giving us grief. We go in, we talk about it. And she was able to break those down and show me the underlying pattern beneath it. And so that's where I first really started getting an understanding of the underlying patterns that were going on in my head and recognizing how I was responding to thoughts, how I was was responding to feelings that I was getting and how those were unhelpful for me. And so that was where I first started to really get a grasp of that. Any examples of that or any, you know, just to help us understand? The biggest example that uh, I can come up with is generally trying to avoid anxiety. That that was one of the things that I regularly tried to do. I, I did not like it. I didn't want to feel it. And I was dedicating myself to getting rid of those feelings. And it's really strange how that creates a feedback loop with anxiety. The more you try and push it away, you're almost training your brain to give you more things to be afraid of. It's, it's like when you're fighting it, you are almost creating this opponent that needs to be there. And so I found that the more I really tried to push this anxiety and these feelings out of my life, they, they just came back stronger later. And in OCD terms, whenever you're doing something to avoid your anxiety or control it or cope with or check on it, um, we call those compulsions. And it's really anything that you're doing to try and mitigate that uncomfortable feeling. And the real key with, with OCD and anxiety in general is learning to let those feelings be there. You can experience that discomfort while you pursue the life that you actually care about. And that was one of the biggest things that I started to recognize when I was working with her. And through my own efforts, aside from therapy, I started being able to recognize that these weren't just patterns in areas of my life that I disliked, that were giving me anxiety. These were patterns that I was engaging in all throughout all facets of my life. And so I was encouraging this pattern, even in things that weren't necessarily bothering me. And it was almost like, if if you were to relate it to physical fitness, it's almost like indulging in a sugary treat on a regular basis. 
So you can, let's say you're, you're doing therapy and, and that's almost like, okay, I'm going to start running. I'm going to start exercising every day, but I'm over here and I'm pounding treats all, all day at the same time. And so I was kind of doing that. It's like I'm doing therapy on these things that are bothering me, but I'm also engaging in all these unhealthy behaviors over here that are actually encouraging that pattern to re-manifest itself in the ways that I don't like. And so recognizing that that's a pattern that was really all around my life, that was really beneficial for me. And just recognizing that it was going to take an overall lifestyle change in the way that I think and in the way that I interact with my thoughts and my beliefs, that's where I really started to, to turn a corner on all this. How do you, that's very helpful for me. And I, one of the things I'm getting from this is living with your feelings. Instead of pushing them away, you're living with the reality of your life and you're learning to manage that, which to me is long, more long-term sustainable than was pushing everything away. It seems like she, I kind of talk about the bottom of the iceberg sometimes. It sounds like she was able to get more to the bottom of the iceberg to understand what was really going on here and give you better tools there. Um, but I like that you were taught not to push these feelings away. Mm -hmm. Um, and how maybe that is more sustainable. So just talk more about how do you change your thinking? Cause sometimes I will go on walks in the morning it's my most reflective spiritual time, but sometimes it becomes negative for me. Mm -hmm. I think about, because my, maybe my mind is less disciplined then. You know, I'm not at work. I'm not busy. I'm not talking to people. And I've noticed that, you know, that can be some of the, I find that my thoughts sometimes get negative. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't sometimes know how to control that. So give us thoughts on how you control thoughts or rewire your brain. Mm -hmm. And so... For me, it was a lot of mindfulness-based efforts, and the, the type of therapy that was really beneficial for me was called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's essentially the process of recognizing that you can't always control what pops into your head, and you can't always control the feelings that you're experiencing. But what you can do is you can control your focus afterwards. And so when you get a thought or something uncomfortable, um, like a, an uncomfortable feeling, you can recognize that that's there, and then you, you don't have to actually dwell on it into the future. You can accept it and you can let it be there while you choose to do things that you're valuing in life. And, and that was really the process that I had to start practicing. And I think that's one of the biggest elements of it is that in order to really get good at it, it's something that has to become a part of your life in more ways than just trying to do it. And so I, I started working on incorporating mindfulness into my life, which is really just giving effort into being in the present moment with whatever you're doing. So if you're having a conversation, you're focusing on, you know, what is the other person saying to me? I'm, instead of focusing on what am I gonna say next? What, what can I do to convey the beliefs that I have in this conversation? Really working to focus on what the other person is saying and, and listen to them. If you're cooking, cook. And it, in a lot of ways, it's as simple as that. It's, it's just being present in those moments and focusing on what you're doing. And it's surprisingly really challenging. And so what I did was I started working that into my life and I started meditating a little bit each day. And I, I know some people like to do meditation as a form of spiritual engagement. But for me, it, it's just a way to build a skill. All that I'm doing is I'm practicing experiencing thoughts and emotions and bringing my focus back to the here and now. 
And my brain loves to wander. It, it loves to go and run off into the future and into the past. It loves to plan for things. It loves to worry about things. And if, if I'm not practicing these skills regularly, it, it's going to do just that. And eventually, that's what leads to the more complex things like rumination and um, that, that unhealthy worry that, that uh, can come down the road with that. And so I think for me, it was really learning to, to be present with those emotions while not pushing them away and deciding what I wanted to do next and, and realizing that I actually had a choice with those. And, and that was what was really challenging in the beginning was it, was it was tough to recognize that the responses that we have to our feelings and our thoughts aren't automatic. They might seem like they are, but it's likely just a habit that's been built up over time. And once I started recognizing that and being able to first just realize that it's happening, that gave me space to make a choice. And I could say, okay, I've got this thought that just popped in. I can either dwell on it and I can run down this rat hole with it, or I can just let it be there and I can shift my focus back to whatever it is that I'm doing in the moment. That's cool. It's really cool. Um, you're 29. Yep. <laughs> you know some really wonderful things about the human mind, about your own mind. I like that you gave permission to have feelings and thoughts. I've always, you know, sometimes feelings or thoughts would come into my mind or the, you know, people I meet with in an ecclesiastical. And I've always, you know, maybe it's okay we just give ourselves permission to have, and some of those thoughts probably aren't very good thoughts at times. Mm -hmm. And about ours. And so I think I like where you said uh, my agency maybe isn't always what thought comes into my mind or what feeling, but my agency starts with what I'm going to do. Exactly. And that, to me, takes away the guilt or the shame that could, you know, sort of back to, I need, you know, it just, it probably is relieving in some ways to say, I can't, and maybe as we get older, we're able to do that, or maybe our, our brain doesn't have all these new thoughts that come into our mind as we get older. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, my mind is probably calmer than it was at your age. That's probably true. Brain cells are dying off, Nelson, so <laughs> maybe no, there's less room it. for... But I do like the way you say you gave permission for feelings and thought. Yeah. And and you said also, I let them stay there. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems relieving too. But then you said, I'm going to be in the moment and I'm practicing mindfulness. And if I'm in a conversation with somebody and I've got this thought or feeling, I'm going to, my, I can control my brain to stay in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a work assignment or a school assignment. And I love the power that you've found in yourself to manage your brain. I mean, it's interesting. Your brain is managing your brain. It's not like a different part of your body mm -hmm. is managing your brain. It is your brain that's managing your brain, but that's pretty cool what you're learning. Absolutely. Uh, it's been really helpful to, to get those skills and recognize that it is a lot like physical health and we can put our energy into the things that we care about and, and we can move forward with healthy behaviors and, and things can improve. I, I'm not a big fan of um, getting labeled something and feeling like this is a chronic thing that you're stuck with. I, I think that, you know, with, with effort and, and sometimes if you need medication, uh, that can help as well. But taking the stance of 
you know what, I, I can choose healthy actions regardless of how I'm feeling. And that's a better measure of my health than the feelings themselves. And so do you take on any of these labels now, OCD, anxiety, or depression? Um, in a sense I do to relate with others who have them, but I don't identify with them. I think my brain has a proclivity to wander off. Like I said, it, it wants to go off into these areas, but it's not something that runs my life. It's, it's not something that holds me back for sure. What do you love about your brain? I like that it's creative. I mean, that's, that's one of the downfalls of having an anxious brain or maybe it's an upside, I guess. Um, but, uh, it loves to connect dots. It loves to wander off and plan things out and it, it's a blessing and a curse. So I, I think it, it's something that it can be really beneficial at times. Like if I'm working on a work project and it needs creativity and some brainstorming, I can really dig in and, and, and it'll just go. But it's something that I do have to keep tabs on. And we didn't really go through your academic credentials, but you have an undergraduate degree and a master's degree in MBA, and are even thinking about doing another degree in social work and shifting gears in your career. Mm -hmm. Share our listeners a little bit about that, because most people don't go from MBA school to considering going into social work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always loved the creative side of business which is what led me to pursue the degrees that I did. My undergraduate was in strategic communication, and I focused a lot on marketing and advertising and then did a, a lot of the same with my MBA afterwards. And I, I had a chance to work at a music studio doing a lot of our branding and marketing efforts. And so that was a really awesome way to, to put my brain to use and, and to use that. But as I, I went through all of this, um, this, these mental health challenges, I, I started to recognize that there are gaps that can be filled out there and that there are things that are, are sometimes missed by, by therapists and um, really being able to put the whole puzzle together and recognizing that, okay, this is more of a lifestyle thing than just one specific issue, even though it seems like it might be just that specific issue. And I just felt like, already I'm in a place where I can start filling those gaps and helping people out. And so I, as I've started to do that, I've felt really rewarded by it. And it, it's something that has felt like it, it's something that's been really aligned, I think, with my core desires. I've, I've felt better when I'm doing that than when I'm doing anything else, when I'm conversing with people and, and helping them out. And it's been amazing. I, I just started... A, a small Instagram page a few months ago and, and just started sharing tips. And it's really awesome to be able to communicate with people on there, have them leave questions and, and just build this community out and, and share the, the information that's helped me so much. And even just connecting on that small level on social media has been really beneficial. Tell our listeners how to find you on Instagram. So on Instagram, if you just search for building brainwaves, uh, that's all it is. That's my username. So you can find that there. I also have uh, a website called buildingbrainwaves.com where they can find me as well. And right now I'm kind of in a phase where I'm figuring out what I'm going to do with my career, deciding if I'm going to go all in on doing mental health coaching or continuing to, to go the business route. But I'm definitely playing with some of these ideas of, of getting more into the mental health field because it's, it's been so rewarding for me and it's, it's something that I think is needed. What caused you to be public and do what you're doing on Instagram and these videos kind of vulnerably and gutsy talking about your own journey with mental health challenges? 
I think it's something that slowly built up over time. And I think the fact that it took so long for me to get this information that has helped me so much, I just feel like I, I'm obligated to share it. And I feel like I'm in a position where I can. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about it is an opportunity to write about something that I'm passionate about. I've always kind of gravitated towards writing and being able to write and record videos and just build content around this thing that can help others and that helps me feel fulfilled has been really beneficial for me and, and I hope for others as well. And I think it, it was just a slow process of realizing, okay, some of these things that I'm talking about are actually helping people. And the more I can share that, the better. So I might as well start pursuing it on some of these platforms to get more reach. I think that's cool. It's a sign of strength and it's a sign that you're not feeling shame about having, I don't even know the right vocabulary. I don't really like saying mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. That seems sort of like a decade or two ago, but I don't know if you got better vocabulary for me, but I like the way you're you're owning this and you're not shamed about it. You're not embarrassed about it. And you're looking at it like as a broken right arm that's taken 10 years to heal. And now you've learned after going to a, doing a lot of work, you've got a working right arm mm -hmm. and it doesn't work maybe right all the time, but you know how to control it. So it works. So you want to share that with others. I think that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, does it help you to talk about it? Does it re-trigger you? In other words, does it re-trigger you? Um, in a negative way because you're talking about your own journey or and does your brain sort of go sideways, you know, as you think about it and talk about it or does it actually help you as you're helping others when you talk about it? You know, that's something I was really worried about when I first started talking about it. and Because you've got just, this brain you're trying to control mm -hmm. and now you're talking about it. Yeah, and, and even just going down that path, I, I remember one of the worries was, gosh, if I start helping people, and I start listening to all of their stuff, like, is that going to make me worse? And I remember letting that hold me back a little bit because I've, I've felt this draw to the mental health world for a while. But I kept saying, oh, I, I don't know if I'm ready for it. I'm still not perfect. I, had, I still don't have my skills down. But the more I started to jump in, I started to recognize that all it is is an opportunity for me to practice what I've learned even more. And doing so has actually made me double down on my own efforts and, and really, really focus on the principles that I've been able to teach. And, and doing so has, has helped me solidify that behavior in myself. And it's another opportunity to recognize that just like my own thoughts and, and worries and issues, they don't have to define me. Someone else's don't either. I can, I can talk to them. I can experience empathy and compassion towards those people without internalizing their struggle to the point that it takes me down. And I think that's something that has been really beneficial for me. And it, it's something that may even be a gift. I don't know. I think it's a gift. Yeah. It's a great gift. Did you think, I mean, I think before we went live, we sort of talk about sometimes like with the broken arm, we would never, I would never ask you to increase your spiritual behavior to solve your broken arm problem. I would invite you to always practice good spiritual behavior, temple attendance, prayers, scripture. But I would never, as a priesthood leader friend, saying, Nelson, do more of that to fix your broken arm. Did you do that for you uh, as uh, thinking that if I'm more righteous, this is kind of once you came up with your mission, if I'm more righteous or more obedient or attend the temple more, or pray more, this will solve um, these challenges with OCD and other stuff. 
Yeah, to a certain degree, I definitely did. I, I definitely remember getting home from my mission and continuing that mindset of, okay, the more perfect I am, the better off I'm going to be as far as these challenges go. And I remember still putting that pressure on myself to work towards um, getting rid of these issues with something. And sometimes that was spirituality, whether it was prayer or temple attendance. I remember feeling like if, if I didn't pray enough um, or if I still felt uncomfortable about something that I, I hadn't repented of, maybe I need to just pray more. And that's a challenging thing to get into because it, it can just feed that cycle. And next thing you know, you're praying all day. And that's not where you want to be. You're not impacting the world when you're praying all day, although praying is a good thing. And so a lot of it was figuring out the things that I really valued. And I think that's what I, I feel like I always come back to is what do I value in life and how can I balance that? Because I do value prayer. I do value going to the temple and being able to work those things into my life as a value-based action instead of a fear-based action That's cool. has been where that shift is. And so I'm not going to the temple because I'm afraid that if I don't, I'll be punished or I won't get the blessings I need. And, and another thing with that that I feel like is really important too is recognizing that it's okay to experience discomfort in the temple. I remember that was one big thing that I ran into when I first came home was there were a lot of times when I went to the, the temple and I still felt unworthy. I still felt these feelings of, of guilt, discomfort, whatever they may be. And I, it's something that kind of pushed me away for a little bit. And so much of my behavior was still feeling based when that was happening. And so one of the biggest things that I've learned is that you can experience those feelings in a place like that. We are still human when we're there. And we can still go through that with purpose or go through that temple experience with purpose um, while we experience something that's challenging and, and that doesn't have to derail us. What would you say to your 19-year-old self? Um, I assume you came home at 19. Um, if you could talk to yourself at 19, 20, um, what would you say to yourself as you came home from your mission? Man, I'd say a lot of things. Um, one of the biggest things I would say is, you know what, this is the best time for this to happen. Um, so many times we get caught up in feeling like this is the best time for this to happen. Mm -hmm. What it's, a great thing for your older self to say to your 19 year old self is you've just had the biggest curveball of your whole life happen mm -hmm. and everything's just turned upside down. Yeah. And that is really cool. Absolutely. I mean, it. I can't imagine having this happen later, being married, having kids, something like that where, where people have to rely on me. Having it happen when it did, it's, it really, there's no better time for it. It's, it's a time when I have a good base. I had a loving family to come home to. I was able to, to lock down a job and, and st slowly start dipping my feet back into school and, and working in regular life. And, and I had um, a lot of support and, and I can't imagine going through what I did at a different time. And so I think at the time it was really easy to get stuck in a almost a woe is me attitude thinking, gosh, my one of my biggest dreams has just been crushed. But in the grand scheme of things, much better for it to happen then than later. What else would you say? I wish I could just info dump everything that I've talked about so far. Um, I... I would really just emphasize the fact that discomfort isn't something to run away from. 
whether it's thoughts, whether it's feelings, whether it's challenges outside of that, outside of the mental realm. Um, I think so often we get stuck in almost a problem solution mindset where we see a problem, our attention goes towards that and we want to fix it. And in a lot of areas of life, that's really beneficial. Um, that's what's led to us having amazing technology to use to even record this podcast. But when it comes to our mental health, putting our focus and our energy into fixing those emotions hasn't been shown to be helpful, at least in my case. It's, it's really the act of accepting them. And, and that's what I would tell myself is, you know what, you can experience these tough things. They don't have to run your life. The only thing that's allowing them to run your life is the attention you're giving them. And it's, it's really strange how it leads you down this cycle of, I feel like I'm addressing my anxiety by engaging in coping mechanisms or whatever it is that I'm doing to try to get rid of it. Um, all that's doing is reinforcing that pattern in my mind. And it's, it's going to prime my mind to pick up another anxiety down the road or, or make it worse. And it, it's something that's, it's almost hard to explain the paradox that goes on there. But especially with OCD, it's, it's the pattern that occurs over and over again in your head, sometimes thousands of times a day. It's this impulse or this urge to do something to get rid of a feeling of discomfort. And when you indulge in that, you reinforce that pattern. And then that urge or that impulse that you experience, it comes back and it's stronger later, even though you may have mitigated it for a minute, right? You might get a little bit of relief from getting reassurance, just like I did in the mission home. I felt good for a little bit, but I was still feeding that underlying pattern. Did you come close, Nelson, to going back out on your mission? I definitely thought about it, and I wondered if I would. Um, but uh, I think I think it, it was just really challenging to to even put my head in that space again during that time when I'd first come home, especially for the first year, because it took me, I would say, a solid six months to feel like I was a capable human again. And then probably a year before I felt decent about things. And then uh, since I, I still hadn't really learned everything that I know now, I was still taking dips every now and again. And I think the fact that I had had that going on, every time I took a dip, I was like, man, yeah, I'm not ready. I, Did I you get pressure to go back on a mission? People would ask me. Um, I definitely didn't feel pressured by my family though. And I, I really worked on not putting that pressure on myself, which that was a challenge. Yeah. How did you do that? How did you not put pressure on yourself? Because you could say, she's not going to marry me now because I'm not a return missionary mm -hmm. or I'm different now forever in the church. Mm -hmm. And that's another one of those things where that is a really challenging, complex emotion and thought to have. And what helped was fully embracing that possibility. And being able to say, you know what, if someone doesn't want to be with me because of what I've been through, then it's not right anyway. And Fully, so instead of denying the thought in your brain, you, you brought the thought in your brain and accepted it. Mm -hmm. It was going to come anyway. And then thought, I don't want to be, she, I don't want to be with someone like that anyway. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. But it, that's not to say it was easy for sure. It, that's something that I still grappled with. And, and I think that's something that I really want to iterate to anyone listening out there is this stuff isn't easy. Mental health is a real challenge. It's when you, when you end up in a hole like that, it's hard to get out. And, and making these changes is something that you, you have to start slow and, and just be consistent and keep going. And 
And with, with a thought or a feeling like, man, maybe someone won't want to be with me because of my situation. It's no different than anything else. It's still uncomfortable. I still didn't like having that feeling and it, it was a worry. It's like, what if it might, but I feel like the power is in it might and accepting that. When you date, do you tell how long, maybe this is different for different relationships, but at some point I assume you talk about this journey with someone you're dating. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? And do you tell that? I mean, just give us some thoughts on that. that. That's something that I used to worry about quite a bit. And I would wait before, or I would wait a few dates before telling someone. But now that I, I'm in the position that I am in now, I feel like people kind of know about it a little bit going in if they have social media. If not, then I'll break it to them. But otherwise, I'd, I would just kind of let it come up on its own. If someone asked me about my mission, I would say, yeah, I went on a mission. I came home early for X, Y, and Z. It's been a real journey. And if you want to hear about it, we can talk. Cool. Yeah. Do people want to hear about it? Some yes, some no. I think some people still feel like it's a little bit of a taboo subject Stigma. or like it might hurt me to talk about it. And and back then there there was still a lot of pain when I first came home, uh, at least for the first few years. I remember thinking about it and, and just thinking, man, I missed out on a lot because I didn't go. And so I think that's that's a real worry for someone else to experience is not wanting to dig up something that's uncomfortable for me. And so I can understand that from their point of view. But at this point in my life, it's not something that I, I let hold me, or I, it's not something that I allow to hold me back. And it's something that I feel like I can talk about freely. Why are you a better, why will you be a better husband? This is a leading question. <laughs> this isn't an open-ended, it's a leading question because I really believe it. But why will you be a better husband? Because you've walked this road for the last 10 years. I think... Overall, it's, it's given me a sense of empathy towards others and really being able to understand that we don't know what other people are going through. And, and everyone kind of has their own journey. And so I think being able to be empathetic and supportive of someone, regardless of what they're going through and, and working on not judging that and put, putting my own feelings on that, that's something that I've really had to learn with this. And I think that's something that's going to be helpful with whatever relationship I end up in, in, in the future, you know, whether it's friendships, whether it's a wife and, and in all things. Why do you think you'll be a better father because you've walked this road? A lot of the same reasons. I think being able to, to see what a kid is going through and, and be able to recognize that, that powerful impulse to let a, an emotion control you, um, especially when you're young and you you're just starting to kind of understand the world and what's around you. Um, I think being able to help a child understand that is something that is really powerful as well. And to help them learn that, you know what, these aren't things that need to run your life. And no matter how young you are, you know, it, it might be more challenging, but there are things that you can do to start working towards a healthier life, whether it's mental or physical. Yeah, I mean, I read this quote a lot. As you all know, it's coming. <laughs> I should have it memorized, but I just pulled it out of the folder. And Jake Watts sent this to me, if you're listening, Jake. The Wounded Healer, it's a book by Henry Norwin. Norwin wrote that a minister's service, and that's who you are, Nelson, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from the heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks 
The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Nelson, you know this desert, you know, like really. It's barren, and it was lonely, and it was brutal, and but you know it. Mm-hmm. And you know it like I don't know it. I haven't walked. I've walked a little bit with mental health, and I've been open on the podcast that I've seen a therapist twice, but it's not like the stuff you've had to work in. It's kind of the edge of the desert where there's just a little bit of green. But, you know, I just look at who you are and the the skills and the Christ-like attributes you've acquired and your ability then to authentically help other people. And I think it's a great sign of strength that you're not putting this talent under a bushel. I think it's a great talent that you have, Nelson. And I think you're not putting it under a bushel. You are using this great talent you have through Instagram, through this podcast, through considering a career now in social work to bless Heavenly Father's children because you know this road and you can authentically lead people. And I would guess if someday you knock on my door and introduce me to your wife, your fiance, your wife, and I had a private moment with her, I would guess this is one of the reasons she fell in love with you. Is this part of you? And I would guess she is opened up to you about things that she's never opened up to any other guy about and that you can handle it and you understand and you will say things to her that no other guy has ever been able to say because you know this world and her world may be completely different. It may be a completely different desert, Mm -hmm. but you will know sort of different deserts. And so, and then I think of you as a priesthood leader one day or priest quorum advisor or a YSA bishop and you will know how to help people, and they won't maybe ever know the full story, mm-hmm. you know, unless they listen to this podcast in 20 years. But that's the beauty of all of our imperfections and how God created us the way we He wanted us to be created, and we're not meant to be perfect. We're not meant to—we're meant to have humanity as part of us, and I think it draws us to our Savior, and it draws us to— Go really deep to understand ourselves. And you've done that. And look at you at 29 and where you are with your with your skills. And you're not this... I'm sure you can have shallow, fun conversations and go skiing <laughs> with your buddies and, and play video games. But you also have this really incredible depth that will just be something that will bless so many people for the rest of your life. And I think, you know, if your kids were on this podcast... You know, in 20 years, you will be able to reach them. They will just know you're safe. They will know that dad kind of can talk about really hard things. Mm -hmm. And your wife at times may just smile when the kids have really complicated stuff. She may or may not have that skill, but she'll just be so grateful that you bring your different skills together in a marriage and you both can reach your kids with your life experiences and you will be able to reach your kids. Mm-hmm. And they will be able to be feel safe opening up to you. I think one of the gifts you have and will always have is as people open up to you about complicated stuff, like your mission president did, he didn't, he didn't shame you. He didn't prescribe increased spiritual. I mean, <laughs> you will know what to do. And so I think that's one of the blessings of your road. And I think most of that, I mean, I'm kind of 
this is just some impressions that come to mind. I'm not trying to be your bishop or your spiritual advisor, <laughs> but I sometimes get impressions, but I sort of feel like this decade has sort of been this decade of healing and really a lot of work. And But you're 29 and you've got all these decades ahead of you that you're going to be able to leverage the work you've done in this decade to help so many people. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on any of that? I think that's the hope. I think that's that's what I want more than anything is that I guess the the pain and the struggle that I went through can be used to benefit the lives of others and you know what maybe they can get on the road to to recovery to better mental health quicker than I can and it it's something that I wish so badly I would have known back then and I could have started working on and it, it was a real challenge, and, and I just hope that it's it's something that really can benefit others and, and you know, anyone that I come in contact with, you know, whether they're family members or people that I, I work with specifically in the mental health world. But that's the whole goal. It's a great goal. The other thought that comes to my mind, you know, is just if, you know, if you were asking my daughter's hand in marriage and I knew all this about you, Ten years ago, I would have maybe been nervous. I would be thrilled with someone like you asking for my daughter's hand and my daughter's hand. Did I say that right? <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Because I recognize who you are, and I rec- and I don't realize I don't know everything about you, um, like I would in a future son-in-law. But I love this part about you. I would not. This would be. Not a yellow flag or a red flag. It would be a huge green flag. It would be a huge upside if you were asking my daughter's hand in marriage because I recognize you could meet her needs better because of this and you could meet the needs of my future grandkids better because of this and the skills you've developed to be able to communicate in a marriage and talk about vulnerable things and have the deep communication that's needed in a marriage or things that you've learned through these 10 years that will be incredible assets to you in a marriage and as a father. So it's just some thoughts about who you are and what you're, you know, what you've overcome and what you've learned about yourself. And to me, that's the beauty of mortality. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Nelson? Man, I I think one of the biggest things is like I mentioned before, if you are in, in a position where, you know, you've come home from a mission for something like this, recognizing that, you know, this isn't necessarily the worst time that this could happen. And maybe this isn't the worst thing that's happened to you, though it might feel like it. It can feel like a really dark hole that you can't see a way out of. But there, there's power in going through that struggle. And regardless of how dark you feel, um, I think you always have a choice. You always have your agency. You can always choose to pursue the things in life that you really want to go for. And you can live that value-based life instead of a fear-based life. And I think working to incorporate that into your mindset each day, that's, that's where the freedom comes with, regardless of your struggle, whether it's mental health or something else. It's recognizing that choice and then making it. Love that. Tell our listeners one more time your Instagram and your website address. So my Instagram is Building Brainwaves, and then uh, the website is www.buildingbrainwaves.com. You can find me there. Nelson Lee, thanks for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Really grateful for our listeners. I don't quite know how to measure how many of you are listening, but I think it's well over five or 6,000 
per episode. And so I'm just grateful for what you're doing to listen and what you're doing to share this podcast with others in your circle. And thanks to Tom Garbett, our producer who posts these up. And um, if you have time, wherever you're listening and you can rate this or leave a comment about the podcast, I think that's helpful to um, get more listeners. You can't donate to the podcast. There's no sponsors. We're not going down that road. This is just a road to bring um, stories of our members so that we can all do better. And thanks, Nelson Lee, again for joining us.